seat. Good morning. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. We will be in Hebrews chapter 3 today, starting in verse 7. I will go ahead and read this and then pray for us and we will dig in. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day. We are your people. You are fairer than the sun. And it's nothing but your blood we plead. We come to you with empty hands, knowing you're the God who gives us life. We, We come to you knowing we cannot save ourselves, knowing you're the one who saves us. We come to you in the midst of our suffering and in our trials, knowing you have suffered and you have been tried and you are faithful. And you are God and you are good. And that we didn't love you first, you loved us first, Jesus. I pray for us, God, today that we would have soft hearts in your hands. I pray for us that you would just hold us and show us how you want us to live for your glory. I pray for us that we would not have hard hearts for your truth, that we would not harden our own hearts against the things you have for us today. But that, God, we would know that you love us, that this text, this text exists because you love us. And we love you, Jesus, and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we're going to look at what it means to have a soft heart for God. What it means for us to be a people who have soft hearts for the truth of who Jesus is and what he has said. Now we're going to do this by way of a warning passage. And it's very important as we approach something like a warning passage that we understand who is offering us the warning. If we impose the wrong things on God, we will miss what he has to say. If you see God as the cosmic killjoy who tells you not to do things because he's trying to ruin all your fun and crash the party, you will miss what he has to say. Uh, If you look at God as a uh, a taskmaster who's going to push you and is just pushing you to push you, or if you look at him as a bad dad, a bad parent, a bad parent uh, will tell you to do things uh, for fickle reasons, for their own selfishness, for their own end, for their own, for their own gain. But a good dad, a good parent, a good parent is different. The warning of a good parent is the thing that a child knows if they understand how much their parent loves them will save their life. You understand that if you have a good dad or a good mom and they say, don't run in the street, it's not so that you'll uh, interfere with their football game. It's because they don't want you to run in the street because they don't want you to get hit by a car. That a good parent offers sound warnings in life, wise warnings in life, so that you'll live. Jesus has come so that we will live. 
And today we're going to look at some warnings. Next week, some warnings so that we can live. Let's go ahead and just dig right in. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, let's, let's stop right there. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, God is not far. God is not distance. distant. You cannot meditate your way to an experience of God. But the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, is a God who has revealed himself. He's condescended to us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, you need to know what we believe fundamentally as Christians about God is that we have a God who has spoken. We have a God who has shown himself. We have a God who has revealed himself, not because we are awesome, not because we are good, but because he is good. One of the clearest ways he has spoken is that he himself came, Jesus Christ came to show human beings who God is. Not only that, he came to save us from ourselves, from all of our selfishness, from all of our finding value in things other than God. He came to do this. He came to die on the cross to wash us clean from all of our sins so we stand right before God and can have complete communion with God so that when he speaks, we can speak back. That's amazing. I mean, God spoke. If you're a Christian today, God has spoken. The God of the universe who formed everything has spoken to you. For his glory and for your joy, he's spoken to you. And if you're not a Christian, you know he's speaking to you today. He has some things for you today. He's spoken through his son. He's come to save us from ourselves and to himself. God has spoken, and specifically today we're going to look at this reality that God's speaking now, and he's speaking through who? The Holy Spirit, God himself. When we stop and we pause and we breathe in the words of Scripture and we look, this isn't just saying, hey, by the way, the Holy Spirit said something. And we don't take that for granted. As Christians, we understand God has spoken and is speaking. How's he speaking? Uh, You don't have to flip with me there, but I'll give you the addresses that I'm going to. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus says this, and Jesus taught in the temple, and he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, so David, writing Bible, declared, this is Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is the single most quoted Old Testament verse in all of the Bible, and it's saying this is about Jesus. And we'll look at it in length in Hebrews. The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, God said to God, sit at my right hand. It is one of the primary Old Testament Trinitarian verses. But how did it get spoken? David penned it. The Holy Spirit inspired it. If you don't have a Bible... We have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one. If you don't own one, please take it with you. I say that every week. I just said it now, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. And you could look at it and be like, a $2 paperback. Thanks. I can even say, this is our gift to you. A $2 paperback. Great. The Gideons give them away for free. You're giving them away for free. At least theirs have like the fake leather. Yours is just a paperback. It, it, it just looks like a, I won't say, it just, it's just some book. 
Friends, we actually believe these are the very words of God we are placing in your hands. The Holy Spirit has spoken through human authors, infallible, inerrant, true, right, good. That $2 paperback, we're giving you the very words of God. And honestly, there's nothing better in my life I could give you than one of those. I have nothing better for you than that. Acts chapter 1, verse 16 says this. Brothers, this is Peter. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Which, what? Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David David concerning Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, if you don't know the story, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. God spoke the plan of redemption through the Spirit in the Word. The Spirit is spoken. Peter also says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised... Oh, that's not the spot. Here it is. Uh, For when, we received, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the, ma- uh, the majestic glory... This is my beloved son. So God spoke over the son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this. He's talking about the people who are actually there at the baptism. They saw it. This very voice bore from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about the transfiguration there. On the mountain this happens. Then what? And we have something more sure. What? On a holy mountain, on the tabernacle with God, you heard the very verse, voice of God spoken over the Son. And Peter's going to say, I've got something more sure than that. I think oftentimes we think, well, if God would only speak, if he would just say something, if I could just hear his voice, if he would only... And we miss this. Peter, who had the if only, Peter had the if only on the, tab- on the mountain with Jesus in his glory, had the if only, says this. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is his if only Most of us have one in our hands or on our phone or both. Let us not neglect this is the voice of God the Holy Spirit. That's a gift. It's yours. You live in a place where you have one and you can read it. Praise the Lord. So if we look at the weight of what is then being said, he goes on. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Two fears I have when we approach a warning text. That you'll miss the point or you'll miss the warning. Number one, let's not miss the point. If you'd go with me to the psalm, this is quoting Psalm 95. What's the point of Psalm 95? Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. What's the point of it? It's to live in the presence of God. 
For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In him, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. Come, let us enjoy him. Let's celebrate him. Let's see his beauty. Let's behold his presence. He's made a way for us to know him. Let's enjoy him. In him are the depths of the riches of everything. For he is our God, and we are his, the people of his pasture. What a beautiful picture. He's like a shepherd and we're his sheep. This is Old Testament king language, a good king. He's someone who looks out after the people and cares for the people. He's a good shepherd. Jesus says this in John's Gospel. I am a good shepherd. So Dave, you hear his voice. Wait a second. And we the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, what did Jesus say about sheep and his voice? Sheep hear his voice. They're his and he's theirs. They know him. He knows them. The way you know that they're his sheep as they listen to his voice. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As a Meribah, that's the proper noun or the proper noun of the place that we're talking about, the actual name of the place, the wilderness, as on the day of Mesa in the wilderness. So back to Hebrews. So here's the point of a warning text. The reason we wouldn't harden our hearts is so that we would enjoy Jesus. The point of not growing hard and cold to God and to others is joy. Right? This isn't where I stand up here and say, you bunch of sinners, you better get your acts together and stop sinning. Because that's how I guess you say that if you say that. It's where I want you to understand the point of this. The point is not simply not to harden your hearts towards God. The point is to have a soft heart towards God. Right? The Christian life is not about living without sin. The Christian life is about living with Jesus and enjoying Him and glorifying Him and making Him the point of our lives. And because our aim and goal in life is the glory of Jesus, the way we enjoy Him by beholding His beauty, by living in relationship with Him, I want all the sin out of my life so that it doesn't get in the way of me and Jesus. I turn from my sin and I turn to Him because what I want out of the deal is Jesus. You need to see that the point of the Christian life is not, not sinning. The point of the Christian life is Jesus. That comes with not sinning. Little children, I write to you that you would not sin. But if you do sin, you need to know that you have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Right? John chapter... First John, chapter's gone. And that's okay, because it's written on my heart. Ooh. Secondly, I don't want you to miss the warning. Uh, the problem with hard-heartedness, as I think we'll see, 
is that hard-hearted people are like a plant that's being choked out from the sun. It's like a living organism that's, that's not getting the blood that it needs. The heart's not getting the blood that it needs, so it's already not working right. And the problem is, is that hard-hearted people are the least likely to hear the words of the Spirit. They're least likely to hear the warnings of Scripture. And to be frank, some of us are knee-deep in suffering, knee-deep in struggle, knee-deep in sin, and you hear the voice of the Spirit. You see what you're doing in the text. You know that it's not the way you want to live. You want freedom in Christ, and you are knee-deep on a dark cloud day, a dark cloud week, a dark cloud year. You wake up, and you're angry at your spouse, or you're angry, or whatever, and you know, this is not how I want to live. Help me, Jesus. And you're turning from your sin, and you're turning to Jesus, and it's a daily battle, and it's a war against your sin. You're hearing the Spirit. Being a person who's not hard-hearted, and being a person who hears the Spirit, does not mean that you're a person without struggle. Do you hear me? It does not mean that you're not knee-deep in your own struggles. It does not mean that you are perfect. To be someone who has a perfectly soft heart is not perfectionism. It's hearing the Spirit. It's hearing the Gospel. It's hearing the truth. And making war against our sin means that we're fighting the fight to turn from that and to turn to Christ. Okay? Hard-heartedness is saying, I don't need Jesus, and I don't need to repent, and I don't need to turn, and I don't need it. I don't need what you have to say. I'm already fine just the way I am. That's hard-hearted. And so I don't want you, if this has been a hard week for you, to be beat up by this. If you're hearing the Spirit and you're trying to get out and you need help and you need God's love and His mercy, you need His community, you need the gospel, you need the Spirit, you need to keep going and lay aside every weight of sin that clings so closely and keep running after Jesus. My fear is that if we have hard hearts, we're just going to think that it's talking about somebody else. A hard heart says, I don't need Jesus. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. We have to stop whenever the word wrath appears. Wrath has so much weight uh, in our time and our place because we come out of a country that has a history of sort of Christianish stuff happening over the last several hundred years. And so sometimes we have theological terms that we don't know how to unpack the weight of. And so let us unpack for just a moment this idea of wrath. Wrath is the business end of God's justice. God is just. Okay? If someone had the ability to either stop an injustice or make right that injustice and chose not to do it, would we call that person just? No. If you're like, well, that person perpetrated something horrible against someone else and that, has, that person has the ability to do something about it and they're not doing anything about it, would you call that person just? No. No, you wouldn't. So God, being perfectly just, right, and righteous, knows everything, everything that I've done, that you've done, that Seattle's done, 
that the world has done, that people in all of history has done, because he's God. He knows it all, and he's just. But Romans 3 tells us a beautiful truth. Not only is he just, but he is justifier. So the truth is, is that God, maintaining his holiness and his justice, has an answer for my injustice and your injustice. His name is Jesus Christ. That God knows that our injustice perpetrated against him and others. We perpetrate it against others by living a selfish life. We perpetrate it against others by loving people, sort of, but it's really just for us, by being kind to people. So people think, oh, that guy's really kind and awesome. Look at him, how great he is. You're not being kind to them, you're being kind to yourself. By our just open rebellion, our hurtfulness, the way we hurt people, the way we do things, and honestly, just the things we choose not to do. We've done all of those things, and he knows them all. And yet he who knows them all, who loved us first, enters into human history not only to be the just one, but the justifier. To say, yeah, I see everything you've done, and I'm taking it on my shoulders. I'm going to die on the cross for you, for every wrong thing you've ever done, every right thing you've ever done for the wrong reasons. I'm going to die for you so that you can live. That thing you did, I'm taking it on myself as if I did it. Just swept nothing, nothing, nothing under the rug. Justifier. For those who are his, drank the cup of it all. Yes, there is a business end of God's justice. And yes, Jesus has come to absorb that on your behalf, to wash you clean, to take your death, to give you life. And this is the gospel. This is the God we serve. He's not fickle, he's not unjust. He's loving, he's gracious, he's merciful, and he sees us standing in front of a bus, pushes it out of the way, and gets hit by the bus so we don't have to. It was your bus. You were listening to headphones. He was the one that pushes you out of the way, and he is the one that dies. You put yourself in front of the bus, he pushes you out of the bus. Why? So you can live. Why does someone get pushed out in front of a bus? The whole point of that is so you can live. So you can live, Anchor Church. Therefore, as I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Who's he talking about? Here's a way we can grow hard-hearted. Whenever the Bible says something, that someone's doing something wrong, you begin to either imagine somebody else or specifically them out there, right? Oh, he must be talking about those people out there, not the people within the safety of the walls of the Boys and Girls Club this afternoon, morning. Oh, those, those sinners out there, those guys. Who's he talking about in this text? He's talking about them out there or us in here. Who are the people that are in the wilderness? How did they get there? Why are they on this camping trip? They were slaves in Egypt. God heard their cries. God came to save them. God parted the Red Sea and they walk across it on dry land. God destroys a hegemonic superpower to take this group of ragtag servants and slaves and get them out. 
Because he cares about the marginalized. He cares about the remnant. He cares about the orphan. He cares about the widow. And Egypt can't get in his way. Hegemonic superpowers can't get in his way. But why are they wandering in the desert for 40 years? Because they were entering into the promised land. They sent some scouts into the promised land. They come back with the report. And most of them say, two of them say, God, you're God. You, you can do what you do. Let us go on into the promised land. And the other guys come and say, uh, the guys in there are really tall. And we know you did that thing with Egypt, the hegemonic superpower and all, but I'm not really sure about the tall guys because they're tall. You think I'm joking. You read it, you're like, that's pretty much their argument. It's not further than that. They're tall. So who are we talking about then? These are the Hebrews. This is a whole generation of people who could not be more closely associated with God. Who are those guys? Those are the guys who had that God that wrecked shop on Egypt. Remember that? Yeah, let's not mess with those guys. Everybody knew who they were. There's places in the Bible that's like, oh, it's those guys. Oh, I don't know about them. They're kind of faithless, but their God's kind of, let's not mess with him. I think he might actually be God. So who's this warning for then? It's for us in here. It's for you and for me. I think there's two people he's really gunning for here, so to speak. The religious and the rebellious. Here's the, the amazing thing about the New Testament. Specifically the Gospels and specifically Jesus. Jesus spends a lot of time walking around associating himself with people you wouldn't expect him to associate himself with and saying people are in hot water who everybody else thinks, no, that guy's got it together. That guy's the guy who, that guy makes it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contemporize it and make up a word. Let's bring it into our own language. Well, he's the guy that, that he's a, he shows up every Sunday and uh, he gives and he serves and he's at all the church stuff. He's at the church on Wednesday. He's at the church on Monday. He's at the thing on, that guy's got it together. That guy's got it together. Right? They're called Pharisees in the Bible. The people who are in hot water in the New Testament are often the people that on the outside from our human eyes we would think are, they've got it together. They've got their light. They're cleaned up. They're squeaky clean. They've got everything perfect. And it's often the people who are the biggest mess who Jesus has the most kindness and love and compassion for. Because hard-hearted people are people who think they don't need Jesus. And who did Jesus come for? He came for people who know they need him and I need him. And you need him. He didn't come for the people who put on their Sunday best. He came for the people who know they need him and the Pharisees and religious folk don't think they need him. They don't need him. Why? Because they're proud. Because they're very good at taking credit for everything they do. The reason you have... Uh, uh, the long track record of getting up and reading your Bible every morning is because you are diligent and faithful and you hit your alarm and you do the thing and you make it out of bed and you pat yourself on the back and say, go team, next. 
You have a long history of not falling into a particular habitual sin because you are awesome, because you have white-knuckled it, because you are amazing, because you are so good, because you are so wonderful, and you don't need the Spirit for that. You're not dependent on Him for your desperate need. You're not dependent on Him for your help to keep you away from death and into life. You don't need Him because you've got it on your own. Your alarm clock works so well. Thanks, Jesus, for the cross. My alarm clock's working just fine. Now, the scary thing about that is very hard to tell the difference between the person when that alarm goes off and that guy's like, I need some, I need some life, I need some water. I'm not going to make it today if I don't get out of bed and open the Bible. And the guy is saying, good job. You read Leviticus again. <laughs> Leviticus is awesome, by the way. <laughs> now, here's the problem. Religious people are proud, and proud people can't hear these things the inclination of a religious person who thinks they've got it all together is to be so busy thinking about how they would say the sermon differently that the person's preaching to them to warn them that they can't even hear the words of the warning and the hardness of their heart. They're too busy judging what everybody else is wearing or doing or where they're at with their spiritual life or how they look on the outside to them. They're busy comparing and thinking about how they are better than others. They're busy praising themselves and their own gifts. When you praise the gifts God's given you, do not praise it in such a way that makes it sound like you are awesome, which means the best practice is not to praise yourself because praising ourselves tends to be a thieving, glory-robbing thing where we begin to treat the things that God has done in our lives like they belong to us. If God's gifted you, do it. Do the things that he's gifted you in so that they can look at you and say, look at how amazing God is. If you spend your time with your lips praising yourself, you could be busy praising Jesus. Self-praise, pride, religious arrogance makes our hearts go cold to the voice of the Spirit because we never ever read the text as if it's talking about us. We never let the Bible read us. And when we do this, friends, we say, Jesus, thanks for the cross. I know that must have hurt, but I've got this quiet time. I, I don't need you here. I know you died on the cross to send me the Spirit, to empower me for your service, to empower me for your worship, to empower me to joy you, enjoy you, but I've got it. The others, the rebellious, the other side of it is sort of in the similar vein for those of us inside the walls. It's when you look at the Bible and you say, I know what it says there, but that doesn't mean me. Oh, I know what it says about, I know what it says about drunkenness, but it didn't mean Wednesday and it didn't mean me. We're married in our hearts. I know that doesn't mean me. That's so first century. These are old sensibilities. God doesn't know what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit doesn't know what he's talking about. When you say that, when you see the text and you say, he doesn't mean me and I don't need to listen to that. Friends, this is the voice of God. This is the voice of the Spirit. I'm not telling you to listen to me. I don't care if you listen to me. I'm telling you to listen to him. I, I got what? 32. I always forget how old I am. Best thing I got... I'm shooting for 100. I would like to preach till I'm like 90. And that would give me 10 years to catch up on something. Your grandchildren aren't going to remember me. 
Your great-grandchildren aren't going to remember me. Your great-great-grandchildren aren't going to remember you. Other than as some kind of faded, passing memory. And that's okay. Because the point of your life is not you. The point of your life is him in this book. I don't care if you listen to me, but I'm desperately concerned for your soul if you read the voice of God and say, that doesn't mean me. Now, here's the scary thing. We'll get scary. This wasn't scary. We'll get scary now. The other thing my concern is that we do this in certain ways and not in others. I've lived in Seattle long enough to hear every reason why the poor do not need our mercy You know, if you give that guy money, he's just going to use it on the black market. If you give him a QFC uh, grocery card, he's just going to use it on the black market. If, If you just give him a bus ticket, they're just going to use it on the black market. And so when Jesus said, give to those who ask of you, he didn't mean me. What's scary is that sometimes we're really good at saying, he didn't mean me about the bus tickets, but he did mean that guy there about that other thing, about Wednesday drunkenness. Right? And here's my biggest concern. Okay, yeah, Uh, bus tickets, black market. Okay, don't do that if that's your thing. Where are you caring? Where are you being merciful? Where are you caring for the poor then? You gave me the reason why you're not going to help him, but who are you helping? If he's going to take it and do wicked things with it, what else are you doing? Where are you going to take that and do something with it? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Take care, brothers, sisters. Let's get out of that psalm. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So his warning is not to stand up here and wag his finger at you. His thing is he's inviting you into life. Don't go cold. Don't go hard. Don't think you, know you don't need Jesus. The religious guy says, Jesus didn't need to be on that cross because I've got it. And the the guy who says, I'm going to disregard the Bible says, Jesus didn't need to be on that cross because the things I do against God aren't really that bad and he didn't really mean me. So that cross, I don't really need it because he he wasn't really meaning me and that sin that I did that day. He doesn't want you just to not sin. He wants you to see Jesus. He wants you to see his blood shed for you to wash you clean from all your iniquities so that you stand there with empty hands saying, Jesus, I need you. Holy Spirit, I'm listening. Help. Help. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Here is the pharisaical test. Here's the hard-hearted test. If you're sitting here thinking about all the other people who need to hear this or all the people that you think, well, yeah, he says he's a Christian, but he's probably not a Christian because I don't like the way he's doing X, Y, or Z. This is for you. This is for you. Because what did Jesus tell us to do? Take the plank out of our own eye first. You should hear, don't fall away from the living God. You stop and look at yourself and say, me, what am I doing? Where am I hardening my heart? And once I've addressed and said, okay, that needs to change, then... God's good, yes. Then we can love each other and we can say loving, kind, gracious things. And how do we point each other back to Jesus? By pointing each other to Jesus. That is grace and his mercy. 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We love each other. We tell each other the truth. Nothing makes a person softer to the gospel of Jesus Christ than the reality that God has loved you first. That we were all enemies against God, and God came and died in our place to make us his friends. Nothing softens my heart more than the reality of Jesus. Nothing wants me to have a pliable heart in the hands of God than the reality of his son. Nothing in me wants to turn from my own hardness. Blowing something off as not being that big of a deal or taking credit for something that God did than the fact that I want to have a soft heart and a deep abiding relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But exhort one another, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now here's the scary thing. So there's some that are just outside, and there's just some of us who grow calluses on our hearts. You grow hard to others. You go hard to God. You grow hard to his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So there are some who when they get to Jesus, they're going to go, well done, good and faithful servant. You stood there saying, Jesus, I need you. Welcome to the party. And there's going to be some of us, many of us maybe even, who turns out we weren't living our lives for his glory. We're living it for our glory. We're legitimately his. And because he's gracious and good, we're saved. But we've been given a life to enjoy his beauty. We've been given a life to enjoy his glory. We've been given a life to love God and love others. That's the point of your life. That is where joy is found. And we have this deep, abiding gravity in our own self to just turn in on ourselves and always make it about us and make it about how late I get to sleep in and make it about how late I was up last night or how hard I'm working. And you have to look at it and say, who did that? Jesus did that, Andrew. Jesus did that. You deserve sleep? Every ounce of sleep you get is a gift, Andrew. Enjoy it. Have it. Don't grow hard. Don't grow selfish. For we have come to share in Christ. This is reflecting a past tense action that has been brought to completion. Why is that important? We'll see in just one second. If indeed we hold fast to our original confidence, firm to the end. The Bible tells us two things. And it tells us two things that at first seem to contradict each other. We want to put those two things on the rails and ride the rails. Let the train sit on the two things together. One, if you are Christ's, you are Christ's. If you belong to Jesus, not height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Take that to the bank. That's durable. Romans 8. At the same time, we're told very scary things. Matthew chapter 7. There's guys who show up and say, but Jesus, look at all the cool stuff we did in your name. We were doing all this cool stuff and we spray painted your name on the side of it and we put a Jesus fish bumper sticker right there. Look at all the cool stuff we did. 
we did crazy stuff. We cast out demons. We prophesied in your name. And he looks at them and he says, I never knew you. Okay. The disciples show up. Luke's gospel. They've been running around doing awesome kingdom shenanigans. They've been preaching the gospel. They've been healing the sick. They've been casting out demons. And they show up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, look at all the cool stuff we did in your name. Do these two instances sound somewhat similar? And what does he say to them? What does he say to them? He doesn't even address what they're doing. He just stops and says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I know someone who did a lot of cool stuff at one point in time and grew proud and arrogant and thought everything he did was about him. Gentlemen, and for us, ladies and gentlemen, church, it's not about what you do for Jesus. It's about Jesus and what he has done in your place for your sin so that everything we get to do is a free response. Yeah, do Jesus stuff. But no, it's a free response empowered by him for his grace and for his mercy. Because he also says this in Matthew 7. Right along with that, I never knew you peace. Good tree can't bear bad fruit. Bad tree can't bear good fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. If you're a Christian, you can't help but bear some good fruit. Is that a relief or what? If Jesus has saved you from yourself, you're going to bear some good fruit. Praise the Lord. This text here is not about whose are his because the Bible is clear. His are his because there's nothing I can do. Not my confession of faith, not the tenacity of my walk that makes me a Christian. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, his body broken and bloodshed for my sins that gives me life and makes me a Christian. However, when you look at a cold heart who has no mercy for others, no affection for God, no tenderness for the word, we begin to get concerned Because there's some bad fruit in there. But what did he say? For we have come to share in Christ. He's banking on this. He's not telling these things to beat them down. He's telling them these things so they would have soft hearts for Jesus. They would not grow hard heart for the life they've been given. So that they would make it to the end. Paul. Paul says things like this, right? So I'm going to press on to make it my, my the, the end my, my, the goal is my, the end is my goal. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I put one foot in front of the other because the gospel reality of Jesus, but I don't quit and I keep going and I have the staying power and I get after him, but I know it's all his grace. Because we're his. His are his. How do we know we're his? How do you know you belong to Jesus? You need Jesus. And you know it. So what do we do? What do we do if we're like, you know what? I am patting myself on the back an awful lot. You know, I have disregarded the word an awful lot. First, you need to know the gospel. First and foremost, is about his faithfulness to you. It's that God came down to you because you can't get up to him. It's that Jesus Christ is the one who bled and died, not you. Turn to him. If you realize you're not believing and you're disregarding the holy words of God, what do you do? Believe. Read it. 
Understand. Do what you've got to do. Insert your name in the pronouns. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for Andrew who is in Christ Jesus. That's powerful, isn't it? Those in Christ Jesus can kind of feel a little distant. I'm not saying do something weird with the Bible. I'm saying stop. If you're getting beat up, if the enemy's on you, if your sin's overtaking you, stop. There is therefore now no condemnation for who is in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for me. I am in Christ Jesus. Nothing makes the Bible soft to your heart than letting the Bible read you instead of you just reading it. And here's the thing. If you're sitting in your seat now, I always want to be careful of this because we do say this every week. We say this is a, this is a party. Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for us. We stand up and take communion because it is a party. We stand up and take it knowing that he paid the price for all of our sins and he's washed us completely clean. You, friends, are white as snow right now if you are in Christ. You are made right with God to live with God forever. And so we don't sit there and say, I am hard, I am hard-hearted, and now I'm going to have to spend a week or two punishing myself for being hard-hearted. Why? Is that the gospel? Is that the gospel? No. No. The distance between us and Jesus in our sin is gigantic, but we're not the ones who crosses it. I'm going to read this and we'll go. If this is you, if you say, yeah, I'm hard-hearted, this is for you. I need you to hear this. Don't, Don't worry about going there. I just want you to listen. You can go there later. It's Luke 15. This is Jesus, and he said... There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Father, I don't love you. I don't care about you. I don't need you. I just want your stuff. In fact, when do you get inheritance? When somebody dies. What's he saying to his dad? I wish you were dead. Give me your stuff. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far-off country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He is slopping pigs for a living. If you've ever been to a farm... This is not a glamorous, agrarian, uh, organic, representative job. He is slopping pigs. And what does he think about their slop? And he was longing to be fed with the pods of the pigs. He's looking at the rotten food they have, and he's saying, I am hungry. He's in a bad way. But I didn't need to tell you that. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, he came to himself. He realized he was hard-hearted. I'm going home. If you're hard-hearted, come home to God. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So our response to our own hard-heartedness is not to write and deliver to God an I'm sorry speech over and over and over and over again, but to acknowledge that you've embraced death and turn to life. And so, yeah, in your seat, when we do communion, take it seriously. Examine yourself. But not just so that you can be a person without sin, so that you can be a person that's in right relationship with Jesus who already paid the price for all of your sins. They're already paid for so that when we get up and take communion, we don't get up and stand here and feel sorry for ourselves or tell them how sorry we are because we've done it. And what did he say on the cross? It is finished. So we take our hard-heartedness and we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus and we turn from death and we turn from life. And if you don't know him, this is the kind of God we serve. Meet him today. I love you guys from the bottom of my heart. I want you to hear this. Because I want you to live. I love you guys. I'm going to pray for us. King Jesus, this is your day. Thank you that you're a good father who wants us to live. You're not trying to keep us out of the street so you can keep watching the game. You're trying to keep us out of the street so we can get hit by a van. Oh, Lord, you are good. You are gracious. Thank you that there's nothing we've done to earn this, to deserve this, or anything, Jesus. This is yours, and it's a gift. Let us not neglect it. May we know that the point of our life is to see you for who you are and live with you and to know you, God. Help us, Jesus, not to grow hard heart, but to be soft for the truth of your gospel. We need you. We need you. We need you. We need you. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.